Morning. Uh, my name is David Sorn. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, morning to you. Hey, question for you. What's wrong with the world? <laughs> I don't know if you think about that that often. I think many of us do. But even from a young age, we look out at the world and we see, okay, there's wars, there's drugs and racism, and families are falling apart, and marriages are broken. There's bad ideas everywhere. What is wrong with the world? And what is it, if we're going to ask that question, what is it exactly that isn't right? How is it that this world is broken? Because if we could figure out how it's wrong, maybe we could figure out how to make it right. What's wrong with the world and how do we make it right? That is our question this morning as we continue into week two of life's biggest questions, where we are looking at the five biggest, most foundational questions of life. Now, this is a question that we think about constantly without always knowing that we're even thinking about it. In fact, for a lot of you in this room, I think that this is the question out of all the five questions we're covering in this series that you maybe think about more than any of the others, even if you maybe wouldn't have ranked it as the number one question that you think about. So when you sit at home and you start complaining to your roommate or your family about how everybody has gotten this whole COVID thing wrong, everybody ever complained about that? I'm sure you have. Don't lie in church. Okay. You're talking about this question, right? What's wrong with the world? How do we make it right? When you go out to lunch with a friend and you start talking about the injustices of the world or the corruption of politics or what's happening in schools these days or what's happening to families, right? You're, you're talking about this question. What's wrong with the world and how do we make it right? Now, as we dive into this question this morning, uh, let me also mention this. This is going to be sort of a different type of message for us as a church, uh, different than how we normally do things. In fact, this whole series is kind of this way. Uh, this is one of the really unique things about us <clears throat> is that it shouldn't really be that unique, but we are Bible teach. That sounds funny when I say it that way. We are a Bible teaching church. And so we normally, we take a passage of scripture and we teach right through it. We want you to understand God's word. But there are times when the church needs to do what's called systematic theology. A theology is the study of God. So systematic theology is simply asking, what does the whole Bible teach on a particular subject? So you dive in and you study, what does the whole Bible say about salvation or sin or the Trinity? And we need to do systematic theology today in order to find the answer to this really, really hard question. This is a massive question, and so it can't, unfortunately, be answered with just a look at one verse, or even just a look at one passage. We need to look at many, many parts of Scripture to develop a more complex, robust, theological answer to this. But before we can get to our biblical answer, we're going to spend some time here looking at unbiblical and ultimately defective approaches to this question because they are quite popular in our culture. So let me start actually with the key to understanding of really this two-part question. What's wrong with the world and how do we make it right? If you're going to make the world a better place, you have to first correctly diagnose what's wrong with it. Because if you misdiagnose what's wrong, then there's no way that you can get to the right solution. It would be like if your doctor misdiagnoses your cancer as just a simple skin issue and just gives you a prescription with some ointment and sends you on your way, no amount of ointment is going to stop your cancer cells from spreading. We've got to diagnose things correctly first. So what's the proper diagnosis for all the illness, for all the, just the brokenness we see in this world? 
Now, I want to really spend some time with a biblical answer on that, but let's start actually with the traditional answer from secular society. A secular, if you're not familiar with that world, just means non-religious. Secular society tends to almost always diagnose what's wrong with the world as an external problem. In fact, to help you think through this today, I've got a chart that I made for you. And if you want to write this down and sort of make this uh, in your notes, you can. Otherwise, at the end of this, uh, I encourage you to take a picture of this as well when we've filled it out. So secular society, when they look at the problem, they diagnose it, and they say, listen, the problem of what's wrong with the world is out there. It's external. It's not in here. It's out there. Or uh, here's a helpful way to think about it. Okay, let's say I could walk around Blaine with a magical wand, right? And I'm walking around Blaine, and I happen to end up in the a Culver's parking lot, right? Which <clears throat> sometimes I'm there, okay? Uh, and I see some people in the parking lot getting ready to go into Culver's like myself, and I, and I, I say, hey, can we come over here? As you know, the world is messed up. Okay, but look, I've got a magical wand. And with this magical wand, you can make one sweeping change to society. Okay, so you just hold the magic wand and you say out loud the one change that you want to happen in our society and it will happen. Now, if I offer that to people, what do you think people would say? Because that really gets to the heart of this question, right? Here's what I think. I think, first of all, I'll give you a couple examples of what I think people would say. But first of all, I think there's a decent chunk of society that would say, you know what's wrong with the world? Republicans. (laughs) In office, specifically. Right? And then somebody else is going to rip the wand out of their hand. (laughs) Excuse me. He meant to say Democrats in office. You know what's wrong with the world? Joe Biden is wrong with the world. You know what's wrong with the world? Donald Trump. You know what's wrong with the world? Packer fans, right? I was just trying to ease the tension a little, a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Glad it worked. Okay. See, this sort of hope that the world can be made right by just a change of political power, it shouldn't actually be all that surprising to us that a lot of people think that way because a good chunk of Americans spent literally hours a day consuming, reading political content. And that content is telling them what? It's telling them that the problem is the other guys. And so they believe then that what we really need is new leadership. Now, this is not specific to just modern-day American context. So if we were to hop in a time machine together and you... Just for fun, you turn the dial to a 100 years earlier from today, and we go back in time. We're in America. It's February 13th, 1922. And we step out of the time machine, and we start interviewing people, and we say, excuse me, uh, ma'am, sir, could you tell me what's wrong with the world? More than likely, they're going to look at you and say, you know what's wrong with the world? President Warren G. Harding. That's what's wrong with the world. Now you're like, I didn't know Harding was president. Look it up on Wikipedia. He was really the president. Listen, you can go, okay, if we go back to 2022, you can go to almost any country in the world right now, and in some places they can't freely tell you this, but if you could talk to them, they would say, you know what's wrong with the world? It's the ineptitude of our leaders. In fact, one of the most common answers to what's wrong with the world that you'll find all throughout history, if you just go back through history books, It's actually in pretty simple language. People have looked at the problems in their countries, and they have said, here's the problem. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. 
If we could just get rid of the bad guys, then the problem will go away. And right, see, this isn't just American politics. Uh, you can see this in the revolutions that have taken place in history. You can see it in the coups that still take place today in Africa and Asia and South America and Central America. But what is happening here in all of these examples? Secular society, they diagnose that the problem of what's wrong with the world is external. So then, unsurprisingly, their solution also ends up being external. So let's fill in the next part of the chart. So they say, okay, what's the problem? It's out there, right? How do we fix it? We fix it out there with an external answer. We just, if we just got a different leader, the world would be a better place. Now, there's a nugget of truth in that, right? We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Which, who is still throwing out bathwater? Stop, use the drain. Goodness, okay. Listen, good leaders matter, right? In fact, there are, there, there are kernels of truth in all the examples I'm going to give today, but you have to, you have to, you have to correctly diagnose the problem first, or you don't ultimately find the results that you're looking for. Okay, let's go back to the Culver's parking lot, okay? I've got the magic wand still. Just as someone finishes saying, oh, yeah, it's political leaders, right? Somebody else comes out, they're just finishing up their delicious concrete mixer, and they grab the wand and they say, no, no, no. It isn't, it isn't so much about leaders. I mean, that absolutely matters, but it's more about laws and systems. And I think there are indeed many people in our country today who think, if I could just wave the wand and I could pass laws to make everyone's life equal, the world would be a better place. And they believe that what's wrong with the world is inequality or inequity. And so they aim to make the world right by lessening the power and advantages of the privileged and increasing the power and advantages of the oppressed group. And so therefore, much of their focus of their discussion is on identities and who has power and who needs to give up power. And they believe that creating equitable systems is the most important fix that the world needs. Now, I want you to see something. The underlying thought between both of these first examples is actually the same thing. So let's fill in the next part of the chart. This is what's happening. They're saying, if we fix the external problem with an external solution, what results is internal peace. And so they would say, okay, life for all of us, even internally, will be so much better. We will all be so much happier if we could get the right leaders and the right laws. Again, kernel of truth here. But as you're going to see in a few minutes, the entrance into the arena of this question has got to be through a different door if it's actually going to work. Okay, let's go one last time to the Culver's parking lot. I think, let's say someone else is coming out, right? They've just finished their delicious onion rings. Anyone in here who's never had onion rings from Culver's? Would you just raise your hand? Look at you. Have you even lived your life yet? Just unbelievable. So they come out and they give me that wand, right? And they say, what are you talking about? It's not, this is not about equity. It's not about equality. It's not about power. If we want to change the world, it's about character. They're going to say, you know what's wrong with the world? It's that people aren't nice anymore. They're going to say, when I was in school, we taught character. We need to teach people again how to treat each other how to work hard, how to show respect, how to show kindness to other people. We need to tell bullies to stop bullying. Now, at first glance, 
all this sort of talk, it, it gives the appearance, it sort of sounds like you're focusing more on internal changes. But if you look at it, it's still outside-in thinking. Because the idea behind this is this, and this has been a huge uh, just current of, of philosophy in American thought over the last 30 to 50 years. It's the idea that if we educate people and we tell them how they should act, then they will be able to act better and the world will be a better place. Again, kernel of truth here. I'm a huge fan of education, but even education doesn't get to the root of the problem. And this is where secular society has really missed it. This is why there are just kernels of truth, but not the whole truth. It's because the world is obsessed with the symptoms, treating the symptoms that are out there in this broken world. Secular society keeps trying to treat the symptoms with a Band-Aid or some ointment without properly diagnosing the internal disease that's really, truly breaking our world. But God's word, the Bible, takes a completely different approach. So much so that if you're not all that familiar with Christianity, some of this is actually going to sound quite foreign to you, but I hope that it makes logical sense to you because this is how you actually change the world. The approach of the Bible is not outside in, it is inside out. See, the Bible says that the disease starts inside each one of us, and that's what comes out and brings the brokenness to our world. So let's go to the other column of the chart now. So if you look at Scripture, at the Bible, it's going to diagnose, okay, what's wrong with the world? It's going to say, well, the problem is actually, it's not out there. It's in here. It's sin. Uh, This in uh, Christian theology is what we call the doctrine of total depravity, if you want to write that down. It's the idea that in Genesis chapter 3, that Adam and Eve sinned. And then their sinful nature, Romans 5 tells us, was then passed down to all of us, to all of humanity. And so therefore, our core nature, that is what comes most natural for us as human beings, is sin. In fact, total depravity, which is a key cornerstone of Christian doctrine, states that our sinful nature is so strong that we literally cannot do good on our own. Because your your depravity is total. That's why it's total depravity. Because if you could do good works on your own, then you don't need Jesus. You can save yourself. And even if you do something that has the appearance of good works, often what we find behind it is our pride or our selfishness or whatever you may find. Instead, this is what the Bible teaches. Let me show you a number of verses here. Romans seven eighteen. Paul says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. The next chapter, Romans 8, 7. We covered this in the fall, actually. Paul says, The mind governed by the flesh, the flesh is your sinful nature, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Even David in Psalm 51 says, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, even though this has been a core essential Christian belief for 2,000 years, it sounds incredibly foreign to most Americans because at the end of the day, most Americans believe that humans are basically good people. And yet, I think the logic of this Christian doctrine is right in front of us. Anybody here have young kids, right? So how many of you with young kids have to teach your child how to be selfish? Like, oh, here, honey, this is how you grab onto your own toy and don't let anyone... You don't, right? (laughs) You don't at all because it is in their nature. It feels like we spend most of our time trying to correct the symptoms of their sinful nature. 
Okay, so now that we know this, let's think about how the world is misdiagnosing the problem of what's wrong with the world. Because remember, every secular theory says that the primary solution for making the world right is external. It's to get a new leader. It's to write a new law. It's to teach people to be kind. But none of those things ultimately treat the disease of what makes the world so wrong in the first place. Okay, think of it this way. If I'm a fifth grader, right? And I had a really cool side spike haircut when I was in fifth grade, if you want to picture that. If I'm a fifth grader and my nature is sinful, like everybody else, like everyone else, you can, if you're my teacher, you can instruct me that it's bad to bully. And you should. But even though I now know I'm aware that it's bad to bully, that didn't really change my inward desire to still just punch the kid at recess that I don't like. Okay? Now, similarly, you can pass in society a good law that says that something is now bad, that it is wrong. And you should pass the law. But the law itself doesn't actually deal with anyone's internal nature or their ability to obey the law. And so thus you can't truly make the progress that you want to make the world right. Because as we say sometimes, you cannot legislate morality or obedience. Uh, The always insightful Timothy Keller and and along with Dick Lucas uh, put it this way once. They said, people believe if only their theory were enacted and accepted, all would be well. As if society were a machine and you only have to remove the monkey wrench in the works for it to function perfectly. Because of this belief, the world lives in a ferment of extravagant hope and bitter disappointment. Every day, politicians promise health and wealth and peace. Newspapers demand an end to crime or crash programs to stop poverty, sickness, or cruelty to children. But every day, politicians and newspapers, therefore, are forced to admit people are still poor and still ill and still fighting one another and still dying. Therefore, they desperately have to blame their enemies for all this wickedness. Now, with a nod to why our world is perhaps so intensely polarized, Keller and Lucas correctly point out that, okay, if there were no internal problem, right? if there was no problem of a sinful nature on the inside, then yeah, you could just kind of, with the right theories and the right laws, you could adjust the system here and there. If everyone was basically good then yes, if you just had the right laws, leaders, and systems, you should be able to make the world right. It would sort of be like removing a a monkey wrench and the world would function. But the fact that this world still feels so desperately broken, especially in countries that don't know Christ, or in countries that are forsaking Christ, it proves that despite all the advances of our ideas, we're not correctly diagnosing the root of the manner, which is the disease of sin on the inside. The true solution to change in this world has to come from the inside out, not the outside in. And please, no one send me an email this week that says I don't care about leaders or legislation. I actually think they're quite important. What I'm discussing is not the legitimacy or the importance of these things, but whether they should be the primary way in which we try and change the world. And the problem is, I think for a lot of us as Christians, that's where most of our headspace is. 
We, we're thinking about those things, those external things all the time. If only this, then this world would be better. But that's not where the scriptures are. Look, think of it this way. Okay, even if we had all of the best of circumstances, that wouldn't actually solve the problem. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was brilliant, once explained it this way. He said, the terrible, tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all man's troubles are due to his environment, and that to change the man, you have nothing to do but change his environment. That is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was in paradise that man fell. The original sin of Adam and Eve occurred where? In the Garden of Eden, in paradise, where all of the conditions were basically perfect. Well, everything except their heart, right? The inside. And so if we want to intelligently answer this massively important question of life, we must see that the diagnosis is internal. That's what's wrong. And thus, we've got to see the solution as internal as well. That's the next part of this chart. We are sinful. We have a sinful nature. And thus, the solution, the only way that humans can actually be changed and thus expect different outcomes is if there is a change to their internal nature. And this is where the Bible is so, so helpful. Because the Bible would say in John chapter 3 that this happens when humans are born again when they are born anew from the Spirit, when they are born and changed from the inside out. Second Corinthians tells us that when people put their faith in Christ and their Savior, this happens. This is chapter 5, verse 17. We just covered this a few weeks ago. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. They're an entirely different person, changed on the inside. The old is gone, the new is here. So the teaching of the Bible, theologically, is that when you put your faith in Christ, that God constitutionally is changing your nature on the inside. We're taught that the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. Your body, Corinthians says, 1 Corinthians 6 says, is a temple for, of God. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, he now gives you the ability to actually do good if you rely on him. Now, lots of times we still go back to our own sinful nature, Right? But he is within us, giving us the ability to do good. Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, teaches a lot because he's arguing with the Pharisees about this who are always outside in. And so he's saying, ah, 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 it's inside out. Uh, Matthew 7 is an example of this. He says, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And so your external works come from who you are on the inside. And this is the beauty of following Christ. When you become a Christian and you're saved, we call that justification. You've been justified in God's eyes. Then what happens is you begin to be, in theology, we call it sanctified. Sanct, the, the, the prefix basically means to be made holy. God is making you like him. And what he does, we're told, is he grows because the Holy Spirit is in you, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Some of you that grew up in church, you had to memorize the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5 as kids. And what that teaches is when God is in you, he grows fruit on your life. And that fruit, we're told in Galatians, is things like love and joy and peace and patience. And somebody help me finish the... No, I didn't grow up in a Christian church. Okay, right. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? 
And it's that fruit, therefore, that is growing out of us that creates external change. And this is what's really cool. So the correct diagnosis is that the problem is internal. The correct solution is that we need an internal change. And then look at the interesting result. So let's fill in the last part of the chart. The interesting result is what results are actually external changes. Now, I encourage you to even take a picture of this with your phone because I don't think that we understand this as modern-day Christians. We get swept up in culture, and so we're so focused on secular society's answer to this question. But it is not the same as the biblical answer. So watch the difference, right? Because the world is trying to fix things from the outside in, thinking, okay, the right leaders, the right laws, the right rules will bring change and peace to our hearts. But the Bible correctly diagnoses that the only thing that will bring peace to our heart is a change of heart. But the incredible gift of that change of heart is that that change of heart then brings a change to the world. Now, this is such a a deep question that sometimes I think it's even easier to see it if we take it from a macro level down to the micro. So imagine with me there are two friends, and they're both 17 years old, and neither of them are Christians, and let's just say they're just making terrible choices with their life. Their parents are like, oh, these, both of these kids are so rebellious. And let's say one teenager has parents that try every external fix they can think of. So at first, with everything that they do, they're like, you're grounded. You're grounded. Seriously, you're grounded for life, right? And then like the next week, they undo the grounding for life, right? And then they try no rules for a while, right? And then they try and give them a different teacher. They put them at a different school. They try different coaches, different leaders. They start making their teenager read books on how to be a good person. And how do you think this works with a 17-year-old? Anyone's like, they're going to love that. This is going to be great, right? Okay, when it's micro, you can kind of intuitively see, probably not going to work, right? Okay, let's take the other 17-year-old, and let's say that other 17-year-old, their family hears about Christ, and they become Christians, and they share the gospel with their 17-year-old who accepts Jesus Christ into, into his life or into her life, and the gospel starts to change them. Have you ever had this happen? Do you know someone who came to Christ as a teenager or as an adult? You can probably just think of all the stories we see here once a month when people get baptized. And what happens? Their world literally changes from the inside out as God changes their heart. So it's not only does their heart change, but now how they treat their friends and how they treat their family and the choices that they make. It's all changing. It's like this beautiful light is emanating out from them slowly, overtaking the darkness that used to be in all of their relationships. Okay, well, let's go back to macro. Because similarly, the same thing happens in society when people know Christ. The world is transformed as humans themselves are internally transformed by Christ. One of the things that's been a huge interest for me over the last two or three years is I read a number of books uh, about revival, I just love learning about revival in history. If you're unfamiliar with that word, revival is just when a whole lot of people become Christians in a really short amount of time. And what we've learned is that revival fundamentally changes society. So there's been a number of sociological studies that have been done in the wake of revivals. And one really good example of this is the revival of uh, kind of 1858 to 1860 that just swept over Ireland and England. And there were many studies in the years after that show that crime essentially plummeted 
in these areas. Literally, you can read in the studies, they're interviewing police officers who are going, I am so bored. Like, there is nothing to do right now. And why is that happening? It's not because the laws changed, but because people themselves were changed. You see the difference? But what are we focusing on? Here's the other cool part. Those changed people then went out to change the world with a power that they never had before. In fact, it was out of this particular revival period that many of these Christians, who had only been Christians for two years or five years, they went out and they started building hospitals where there weren't hospitals. They started constructing orphanages because the orphan problem was so massive in England at that time. Many of these new Christians started labor unions that protected the rights of children because remember in those days, many children, like, Ten-year-olds were working like 10-hour days in factories. And see, men's and women's hearts were changed on the inside, and then that light from the internal change spills out into society, and you begin to actually change the world. Now, at the end of the day, let me just, let me just say this. At the end of the day, I think this is a huge question, and I think so many people in our culture are thinking about this. But I would also say this as a Christian— it is a bit of a false premise for us. It, this isn't actually our main question. I mean, one of the ways you can think about this is Jesus Christ, when he came, he came not primarily to bring societal change, right? So Jesus doesn't come saying, my number one mission is to make sure that culture in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas right now, that it's just better and that people obey my morals. That's not what he came. The number one primary mission of Jesus was to reconcile people to God. And above all, we seek to do that too, as his ambassadors, to change not just people's world, but their eternity. But we believe that as we do that, along the way, the world will be changed too, from the inside out. Let me pray. Lord, we just uh, we thank you for your word on this. Uh, we know that it is different than how society around us tries to bring change. But Lord, we pray that we'd be a light in society as we come at this from a different way. We know that it, we, that it works. We trust your word. Lord, may we just dive deeper into the truth of it. May you use us as a light in the darkness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.